I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. Episode 4 is going to be called The Ugly Truths, because nothing in this episode is going to make me look good. Also, I'm going to flip the order around. We're going to start with a few times I chickened out while rock climbing. Second, me being culturally incompetent. Third, a poem I wrote about weakness and honesty. Fourth, there are always people who hate what I make. Fifth, when geeking out becomes fragmentary. Six, per request, a few outtakes and mistakes. Seven, Finally, we'll finish with a dedication and a message from the rattlesnake that I ate this past summer. When you've been in the National Climbing magazines, magazines like Rock and Ice or Climbing, or Gripped, Canada's Climbing Magazine, or you've been featured on rock climbing websites, you might start to think you're kind of awesome. The only problem with that is you know the truth about yourself. You know that for every single time you looked rad in a photo, for every single time um, somebody said something about you climbing well, there are probably 10 to 30 times you climb poorly and it's not just about being physically weak or having bad technique which I'm sometimes weak and I sometimes have terrible technique it's also about being mentally weak so I've got a few examples of times where I completely chickened out first in Yosemite Valley I was climbing the east buttress of Middle Cathedral with my friend Garrick And he called me kind of last minute a week before the climbing trip and said that his partner had bailed and he needed somebody to go to the valley with him for a week. So, of course, I said yes. The only problem was I hadn't been climbing a lot of trad and I definitely hadn't been leading a lot of rock climbs. I'd just been bouldering, some outside and some in the gym. So I really wasn't in any kind of endurance shape. But even worse, my mind wasn't in shape. So on the east buttress of Middle Cathedral, We were going to lead in blocks. The East Buttress is an 11-pitch route, so it's 1,100 feet tall, averaging 100 feet per pitch. And in these 11 pitches, I was going to lead the first five, and he was going to lead the last six. That meant that I was going to lead through the crux pitch, the 510C, which isn't really hard. I was going to lead that pitch because at that time... I had lead climbs that were nine levels harder than that. So it was an easy moderate for me. But the crux pitch wasn't even the problem. Right from the start, I was climbing slow, and I was being overly cautious, and I was kind of shaking through really, really easy moves in the opening couple of pitches. By the third pitch, five, seven moves felt hard for me, and I was kind of placing gear badly and sort of, you know, doing that kind of mental weakness talk where you're like, I'm not feeling that good today. Um, 
kind of hungry. Maybe I'm dehydrated. Uh, I'm a little bit weak right now. Um, maybe I shouldn't keep leading. Uh, maybe Garrett could lead more pitches than six. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, got to the crux pitch. I'd led the first four. Fifth pitch is 5-10-C. And you hike out on this little catwalk. You're about, you know, 400 and something feet off the deck over these trees way below. And I reached up to try to get the first bolt. And I couldn't reach it. And, you know, I'm, I'm vertically challenged. But I, I wasn't close to the bolt. I couldn't reach it. And I uh, got up on my tiptoes and I held onto this tiny little crimp. And I reached up again. And I still couldn't reach the bolt. And at this point, what you do is you usually traverse back. You find a bush. You break off a branch. You make a little stick clip. You clip the bolt and you continue on with the route. But instead, I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not tall enough to reach the bolt, so uh, I, I probably can't lead this pitch. I, I should probably give this lead to Garrick. So I turned the lead over to Garrick, and Garrick, being almost a foot taller than me, traversed across, reached the first bolt, got through that pitch. But then after that, instead of taking over again and leading a pitch or two more, I just bailed completely on leading on the whole idea, and I was like, yeah, I don't, would you mind just leading the rest of these pitches, just get us off this route, and I just chickened out. But I also chickened out at Castle Craig's with my friend Dane. We were climbing a route called Mount Hubris, seven really, really easy pitches, and I led the first pitch, and I couldn't find a lot of good gear, but the pitch was stupidly easy, yet I kept questioning myself and I kept saying, is this safe? Um, am I going to fall? I wasn't going to fall. There was no chance I was going to fall. The rock was really solid. I just didn't have any gear. And I got through that first lead after taking an inordinate amount of time to lead it. And then I just told Dane, uh, I'm, I'm not leading anymore today. I, 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 I can't lead on this. It's just not safe. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. And so he led the next six pitches of the route. And I just followed along in my little safety bubble where my brain didn't have to be challenged at all. But I've also chickened out at Smith Rock State Park on an even shorter climb. This was a four-pitch climb. It was about a you know, 400-foot climb. I was with my friend Jeff, and he led the first pitch. We were going to leapfrog leads. So he leads a 5-6, really, really easy pitch. And I'm following him. But as I'm following him up, I do that kind of negative self-talk thing again where, like, my body doesn't feel that good today. I don't feel loose. I didn't sleep that well last night, blah, blah, blah. The second pitch is a 5-10-C. And I step out onto this boulder, and it's kind of exposed and I clip the first bolt, and I clip my rope in, so I'm completely safe. There is no danger to my life at all. I have a helmet on. I have a really good belayer in Jeff. And all I need to do is make three moves to the next bolt. But instead, I just kind of put my head against the wall, and I closed my eyes, and I shook a little bit. And I was just abjectly terrified of absolutely nothing, because my fear wasn't logical at all. And then I stepped up, and I did the first move, and the second move, and the third move, and I 
pulled my quick draw and I clipped it into the rock. And then I just freaked the hell out. Grabbed the quick draw, totally cheated, clipped my rope in, told Jeff to take, and then I hung from the rope in terror, even though I wasn't in any danger at all. But it's not just multi-pitch climbs that I chicken out on. I was climbing in Camp 4 in Yosemite National Park, and I was on a V1 slab, which is pretty much a beginner route. And I'd been climbing for many, many years and climbed some pretty hard boulder routes in the valley and all over the west. I'm on a V1 slab, and all I have to do is hike my feet up and then high step right, match hand foot, and just stand up. But instead I look down, look at the fall, think about what it would be like if I did fall, think about what if I didn't hit my crash pad, what if my spotter didn't catch me, and I just climb down and chicken out. And then I tried it five more times, and I bailed every single time. But it's not just outside that I chicken out. I've also bailed on routes at the gym. And there's two kinds of weak, weak mental bails at the gym. First is where you pull on holds and you try a route maybe once or twice. And instead of working it and trying to work on your weakness and battling through, you just say, ah, I'm not that strong today. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. But that's not the worst thing you can do mentally at a gym. The worst thing you can do is you really want to try a route, but there are a bunch of people working on the route. And you kind of want to maintain the illusion that you're actually a strong person. So instead of trying the route with everybody else and failing along with them, you don't try the route at all. So they assume that you can do the route, even though you've never done the route. And you probably can't do the route. If you tried it, you certainly wouldn't get it on the first try. But you can maintain the illusion of excellence by not trying the route at all. A few days ago, I was biking with my class, the outdoor program I run, at my local high school. We were biking back from the bridge downtown. So we're going through kind of a traffic congested area and the bike lane is in the middle of the street. So the right side drive lane is right next to us and we're stopped at a red light and this car pulls up next to me and uh, this cute little dog pops his head out of the back window. Little black and white dog and I love dogs. So I was petting this dog and just like rubbing his ears and talking to him and he's just going nuts and licking my hands and I lean my face in and we're like kissing, you know, I'm making out with this cute little dog um, on the back of my bike as it's ducking its head out the back window and it's kind of going crazy. It's like trying to get through the window to me. So I lean in and I kind of uh, call out to the driver and like, Sorry, I just really love your dog, you know, like that. And then I go back to focusing on the dog, and it's still a red light. Well, the driver rolls down his window, and he starts talking to one of my students, um, 
who's a few bikes in front of me, also stopped at the red light. And they're talking back and forth, but I'm not listening. I'm just completely focused on this dog, this cute little black and white dog, and petting the dog's face. And then finally, the driver turns around and looks at me. And I say, oh, I'm sorry if this is annoying. Your dog's like scrabbling around in the back of your car. I just really love dogs. And the driver says, in the worst fake Australian accent I've ever heard, he says, oh, it's okay, mate. You can pet my dog anytime. So I was like, oh, we're doing horrible, horrible Australian accents. So I was like, all right, mate. I love all the dogs in the worst Australian accent I can do. And I can't even do a very good one, even if I tried. So I kind of yell this out to him. And he looks at me weirdly and pauses. And then he rolls up his window and then the light turns green. And then he drives away. But before we bike away, my student, she turns around and she's like, why'd you do that? And I was like, do what? She was like, why'd you say that? And I was like, oh, you mean where we were doing those horrible fake Australian accents? And she's like, that wasn't a fake Australian accent. He's from Australia. And I was like, wait, what? you have a seizure disorder, um, at least for me, it's pretty embarrassing. I can't do things like look at flashing police lights or even watch a YouTube video that has strobes in it, um, you know, and focal seizures are embarrassing. It's where your brain times out and you start doing things like repeating the same question over and over and over. I've done that before in public where I ask the same question 15, 20 times. So it's kind of embarrassing, but the other option is to take a medicine called topiramate. And topiramate can get rid of your seizures. Um, it can keep you from having seizures, but there's a pretty common side effect where you get this skin condition, and if you spend a lot of time outside, the skin condition can be fatal. In fact, if you get the skin condition, going outside often can make the skin condition fatal in 10%. Uh, so one in 10 people could die from taking this medicine if they go outside, and I go outside all the time. So I just don't take my topiramate. I've had it prescribed many times by my neurologist, but I just dump it down the toilet um, or Lately, I've just stopped filling the prescriptions. So I wrote this poem about my experience of having this weakness. It's called Holding the Prescription of Topiramate. There's something about imagining that I am strong. Nothing prepared me for waking in my bathroom, back rigid across the edge of the tub, the seizure coming undone like loosening straps on the white jacket. Dreams of a million pixels dissipating. Shuddering one final time 
and my body covered in the rank sweat of an animal that could never be me. These are not the stories we tell other people. Better to mention glories and successes, or at least funny anecdotes, small failures that play well to a room full of people holding thin-stemmed wine glasses. Don't mention insomnia overrunning my field of sleep, the locust mandibles masticating on the catalog of my fears, or aphasia, word switching, when I pull the food from the oven, tell my family that I've made tattoos for dinner. Better to smile and nod, say, Como estas? Bien, bien, y tú? Estado ocupado. Small talk. Mention the weather. It's been hot lately. Yeah? Ever since I published my memoir, The End of Boys, in 2011, I've had people hate my writing. Actually, before that, um, when I won the Rock and Ice National Bloggers Brawl a few years earlier, I got some hate mail on that from some homophobic people who felt like I was glorifying male relationships, which is pretty ugly. But it, the hate really started with my memoir because I wrote the truth about people and I didn't look good in my memoir and other people didn't look good in my memoir and I used people's real names and they didn't like that. So I had people come to my readings and yell at me, things that in retrospect sound kind of funny, but at the time were a little bit horrifying. The worst was when I was opening for a pretty famous writer and this bookstore was packed with hundreds of people and three of my haters showed up and yelled at me from the back of the room, you're just a little bee, blah, blah, blah. And now with this podcast, I've gotten my first one-star review, so somebody who hated my memoir a long time ago has come out of the woodwork to find the new thing I made and give it one star to balance out. But it wasn't just people who were embarrassed by being in that book. Also, a lot of people just didn't like the way it was written. I've got a few examples. For example, this is from Goodreads. Uh, someone named Jay Linney gave it two stars and said, hmm, disjointed and confusing, a grueling childhood and adolescence, which could have been well told and interesting and has been before in better memoirs, but wasn't. Chelsea wrote two stars. Okay, first of all, I didn't realize it was a nonfiction book. That makes it a little more interesting, I guess. However, it felt like it was all over the place. I had a hard time following the storyline. Leah rated it two stars. Very fragmented memoir of a troubled youth. Had me half intrigued until two-thirds of the way through. Then I was just annoyed by it. Vicky, two stars. Don't bother. Tiffany, 
Two stars. This book was all right. It didn't flow terribly well. It was a little all over the place, if you will. Kristen, two stars. The two highlights of this book are the cover photos and the afterword. I am relieved to be done with it. Debbie gave it one star and wrote, What a wine. Sue gave it one star. Christine, one star. JJ, one star. Marion wrote, I did not like it. Emma wrote, I did not like this. And Sonny wrote, one star. I did not like it at all. One of my favorite things about making this podcast is getting to geek out on a different subject every two weeks. I get to research, watch videos, find explanations, and go in-depth on a topic that's pretty random, but still interesting to me. The problem is, I can have a pretty scattered mind sometimes, jumping from idea to idea to idea, and sometimes it only makes sense to me, and then sometimes my research or ideas from friends make me jump around even more in my head. For example, for the last podcast episode, I was researching bats and trying to fully understand echolocation. And my friend Jen Burns sent me a video about bats running into each other, how their echolocation doesn't help them avoid collisions with each other because their flight patterns are erratic and they can't predict where another bat will move to. And this led me to watching bats collide with other things. For example, they often run into smoothly made human objects like glass or steel because the objects don't have enough texture for the bats to see them as real things. But then I was on a tangent of sight, and Jen sent me a video about the differences between dog's vision and cat's vision, and then I researched that and found out that humans only need a frame rate of 15 to 20 images per second to see frame fusion, something needed when we watch a moving image like in a television program, whereas dogs... They need 70 images per second, and cats need 100 images per second. Since TV is standardized at 30 frames per second, to cats, it looks like a strobe light. Then I researched further and discovered that the average human eye experiences the real world at about 40 frames per second in normal sight, meaning that even the strobe effect we can't see in a movie because we've created fusion, is still there for us as the average movie is filmed at 24 frames per second. But then I took a break from vision and from image facts, and I read a poem that had an allusion to John Milton, the English poet from a couple of hundred years ago. And then I started thinking about Milton going blind, and I researched him and found out that he wrote hundreds of pages of perfect blank verse after his blindness set in to create his books Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. Then I started thinking about framing blank verse in my mind without being able to see the syllables and the stresses written on the page. And now my topics were really all over the place. Then my wife Jenny told me that the geologic theory of Pangaea was proposed in the 20th century. And for some reason I thought that Pangaea was a much older theory than that, so I looked it up, and I discovered that Pangaea's existence was first proposed 
1912 by German meteorologist Alfred Wagner as part of his theory of continental drift. Furthermore, Jenny told me Pangaea has happened many times, so I looked that up and discovered that over the course of the planet's 3.5 billion year history, several supercontinents have formed and broken up, a result of churning and circulation in the Earth's mantle, which makes up most of our planet's volume. So then I was thinking about continental drift and land reformations, and the patterns of those reformations always changing, and I realized that what I was actually imagining was a pretty good metaphor for my always curious but ever distracted mind. Because Rue asked for them, here are a few outtakes and mistakes from the recording of this podcast episode. About chickening with the <laughs> chickening Ch- chicken. Uh, let's see here. Shoot, shoot. I lost where I was. The thing about climate. I wrote this story when, no, poem. I wrote this poem, I wrote this poem when I was, um, okay. It's good I have a good memory because I can always remember what I'm saying. Um, shoot, I can't remember what I was talking about. Good job, Pete. You almost had the volume at the correct level. Way to go, buddy. This episode is dedicated to my friend Lee Baker, who's seen me be mentally weak on kayaking trips and rock climbing trips. But he also has to deal with the fact that I've never owned a cell phone, so it's hard to text or call me. And I'm an annoying friend because I forget to look up my messages, so I miss a lot of opportunities to hang out. Lee's also a country boy, so he likes these country type stories. Last summer, my nephew, my stepbrother-in-law, Scott, and I were setting up camp at our usual place out on BLM land in the high desert in Central Oregon. And I had already pulled a bunch of things out of the car, and I was setting up my hammock between two trees when I saw my nephew jump sideways, my nephew Camby, and immediately I knew what his yell and his jump were about. I ran down there, and there was a huge rattlesnake wending its way between a bush and our fire ring. Now, the rest of our group was about to show up in a few minutes with our two dogs, and I had a tough choice whether to prioritize the lives of the dogs or the snake. And the thing is, I really like snakes. I don't like to kill snakes. I almost never do it. 
I really almost never do it. I see snakes all the time, and generally I just look at them and wonder, or I catch them and hold them, but I don't kill them. The thing was, though, my dogs were coming, and Bob Dylan, the boy dog, and Hank Williams Jr. are pretty important to me, so I decided to prioritize the dogs, not the snake. So we pinned the snake, and Camby shot it, and Scott cut his head off. But because I don't like to waste anything, we skinned the snake and took the rattle, and I cooked it up on the fire with some Johnny salt, and we ate that rattlesnake. And I still have that rattle today. And it's weird, but while I was recording the podcast this morning, it was like the skin of the snake was whispering to me. And it kept saying, ask your listeners for a five-star review and ask them to tell somebody else about the boring is a swear word podcast. And my